Welcome to Falling in Love with God's Word with Jill Grossman. Hi, I'm Jill. I'm glad you're taking the time to grow in your understanding of God's Holy Word. I invite you to visit JillGrossman.com. There you'll find additional resources to help you fall in love with God's Word even more, such as books, speaking topics, and workshops. Now, let's get started with today's lesson. Okay, we're good to go. All right, let's go to the Lord one more time. I just need that covering. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this lecture. I thank you for the, the <laughs> I thank you for the fact that I rewrote this quite a few times this week and just the, the detail that's involved. And I just ask, Father, that you just let the history lesson and, and what you want us to learn sink in and what's not important, let it fall away. Let, let, let the message be loud and clear what you're wanting us to learn. And so we give this time over to you now. Amen. Okay, so um, before we before um, we go and study, let me give a, let me paint a little bit of a bigger picture here. So, in order to grasp that timeline, that bigger picture, we need to know a few things first. First and Second Chronicles is the historical account of Israel, and the book after that is Ezra, and Ezra is the continuation of that story of the historical account of Israel. And then after Ezra comes Nehemiah, and that's the continuation of Ezra. So the reason I bring that up is that's all kind of part of all of this. So Ezra, in a nutshell, leads the return back to Judah from the captivity of the 70 years that they've been in captivity. And so um, Ezra's job is is he he wanted to advance the worship, get that better, and he wanted to do the teachings of the law. Because people had lost their way. They were kind of doing their own thing. They had lost what was grounding them as, as Hebrew people. And their worship life uh, was in disarray. So he and Nehemiah begin this rebuild of the temple and obviously the building of the wall in Jerusalem. So I just say all that to say that all this is kind of all happening kind of this a little kind of right after Daniel gets these visions. But right before this happens... Where he, that's where we are in the book of Daniel. Between the end of chapter 9 and the beginning of chapter 10, this history-shaping event occurs that the Jewish people have been released from their captivity. And then comes Ezra, and then comes Nehemiah, you know, all that. And it's all told in First and Second Chronicles. So, with that said, we know in Cyrus's first year as king of Persia, he gave the Jews permission to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. So let's go look at that, okay? Um, in Ezra 1 through 4, it says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. Now, that is Ezra narrating what he just said. What he was, you know, He's narrating this. And then he says, this is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. So this is the proclamation. And think if you were a Jew hearing this proclamation. I mean, you just want to jump out of your skin. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. 
And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people who who I'm sorry, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. I'm like, yippee! I mean, you know, wow, that's just awesome. So this was just as Daniel had prayed for in chapter 9. Israel's captivity was over. And I'm sure Daniel had tears of joy going down his face as he watched the caravan of Israel's leave Babylon to finally go home. And even though it's not clear that why he didn't join them, I'm sure his old heart must have yearned to go home, to be in Jerusalem like it always had to join them. But let's move on. So two years later is where we pick up in chapter 10. It says, In the third year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, and goes on with the scripture. So nearly 50,000 Jews by this time are home in Jerusalem, or in Israel. And they're part of the, well, in Jerusalem, because they're part of the temple reconstruction, because it's underway right now. It's been, it's been two years. And Daniel still prays to his people, for his people, because of what happens in Ezra chapter 4. Now, it's too much to read, but basically there's news of people trying to sabotage the Jews and plans to, in the rebuild. And in Nehemiah, that's what they fight against. They're, they literally have, as they're building the wall, they have a sword in one hand and they're doing the, they're doing the wall in the other so, because they're fighting. They're, there's all this, again, unrest around them rebuilding the wall and the temple in Jerusalem. So the news grieves Daniel. And because he knows from his previous visions that more turmoil awaits Israel, He knows that in spite of the present restoration that's underway, the nation is destined for more war and it's destined for more bloodshed. And he doesn't know when, where, or with who, but he prays and he pleads to the Lord about this. So he's heavy-hearted about what he knows is to come. But there's silence, agonizing silence in his prayers. And finally, after 21 days of praying and fasting and grieving, he's visited by an angel or a precursor to Christ. One that looked like a man dressed in linens, it says in verse 5 and 6, with a belt of finest gold around his waist. His body is like chrysolite, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like gleam of burnished bronze. And his voice is like the sound of a multitude. Now, Revelation 1, 13 through 15 says, talks about Jesus coming in the sky. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as the snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. That said flaming torches in Daniel. And his feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. Now it says his legs like gleam of burnished bronze, and the voice was like the sound of rushing waters. So it's possible it could be, you know, Christ. But that explains what he had been fighting Um, this angel, this messenger had been fighting the prince of Persia and I just love this picture, I just had to put that up there because it's a fighting angel, that's just awesome maybe that's what they look like when they're really going at it and fighting 
No human prince could possibly restrain an angel. So this prince must have been an evil angel demon. And after that he was fighting, and after receiving help from another angel, as we know through scripture was Michael, this angel finally comes and touches the weakened Daniel, renews his strength, and explains. Because remember, Daniel's been fasting too for 21 days. And he explains, Now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future, for the vision concerns a time yet to come, in verse 14. So the angel will soon leave the fight against the prince of Persia again, and the prince of Greece will battle against him also. So he already knows he's in for more fighting. Oh, whoops. Sorry. All right. So I wanted to, I wanted, I found this in a commentary, and it's a point to ponder. Here we see evil angels that are assigned to Persia and Greece. World political leaders think they govern the movements of history. But usually they are unaware that invisible spiritual forces influence events more profoundly than they do. The spiritual forces involve themselves, especially when nations are dealing with God's people. Understanding this should encourage us to pray more diligently because God uses the prayers of his people to influence world events as well as personal lives. So when you see something in the news about the UN not standing with Israel or something's going against Israel, I encourage every one of us to get on our knees and pray because our prayers are not insignificant. And I just want us to remember that the next time we pray. So the angel in chapter 10 tells Daniel not to be afraid and he encourages Daniel and he, he will need all the strength he can muster as he will hear about what awaits his beloved Israel. So he's, he needs to be strengthened about what he's getting ready to hear. So now we're going to move on to chapter 11. Like several other chapters in this book, it shows us how history evolves into prophecy along God's timeline. 35 verses tell us about the ancient empires and their perpetual wars, and ten verses will continue right up to the coming of Christ. So here is an overview. Oh, and just for what it's worth, a little tidbit. Scholars estimate that 35 verses in Daniel 11 contain 135 fulfilled prophecies. So that's why this book is so contested. So anyway, okay. So here's an overview of the timeline. Remember when we were talking, go all the way back in your heads about the dream Nebuchadnezzar had and all the different empires? We're kind of talking about that a little bit again. So the Medo-Persian Empire, or Greece, Medo-Persian and Greece, the, those empires, starting with, oh, uh, starting with chapter 11, verse 2. Now, if you want to open your Bible and follow along or mark on your verses, you can. You don't have to, though. The angel foretells of three kings who will arise after Cyrus. And it says the fourth king who will gain more riches than them all and stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. Now, history bears this out. There's Cyrus, who is king right now. Then he has a son, Cambyses. Then there's Samaritus. And I've shortened these names. It's like pseudo-Samaritus, Samaritus. And then Darius I. And then Xerxes. Now, some is Atacerses, or I forgot how it's said. It's a different name, but it's the same king. It's got two different names. Xerxes, it's the same king that marries Esther. That's, that story's found in the book of Esther. He ends up being the richest of them all. 
and Xerxes attacks Greece with a massive army and captured Athens in 480 BC. Many years later, Alexander the Great conquers many empires and is the mighty king the angel speaks about but dies early and then the empire or the kingdoms are split into four sections with four different generals. Remember I showed you this map a while ago of the four different um, empires that came to be after um, Alexander the Great died. God's message here with these prophecies that we just read about only concerned two kingdoms. Egypt, which is the king of the south, okay, and Syria, which is Babylon to the north. And so those, those were Ptolemy, that's, that's uh, the king or the empire, it was the Ptolemy Empire, it's the P is silent, the Ptolemic Empire, and the um, Seleucus, or um, Seleucus, Seleucus says, Empire. Seleucid, but what, does that cover... I'm confused about what... Just don't worry about all the colors up there. Those were just these two. This is Egypt. Right. And this is more like the Medo-Persian Babylons over here. Israel's right in here somewhere. So that's... This is what these scriptures... These are what these scriptures are focused on. These particular empires. These two empires. So... Let me just point out as we get, get ready to move on to chapter 11. These are so accurate from the prophecy in history that some scholars debate that it was written after the fact and not before. But when you consider that Daniel's prophecies about Nebuchadnezzar and his dream and what came true and Belshazzar, because even he talked about Nebuchadnezzar about going insane, remember that? It wasn't just about the dream, all that stuff. Um, those historic facts are all, or the prophecies were all recorded within the kingdom. Also, all kingdoms record all events. And when you connect them together, which were found in the Nabonidus Chronicles, remember I showed you that cylinder from King Nabonidus? All right, Nabonidus Chronicles, um, they actually happened long after uh, the prophecies were recorded. So you can press them and they came true because they've been recorded secularly and then they were also prophesied years earlier almost very tightly. You know, you, you can press them and they become very true. So with this breakdown of the leaders and timelines along with the prophecies, it's, I'm showing you what most commentators have agreed on. Okay? All right. So when you read verses 5 through 9, okay, um, they will predict a tug of war that will take place between the Ptolemics and the Seleucids, and or Seleucids, excuse me, that carry on for the next hundred years or so. During this power struggle, the Ptolemies controlled Palestine. Their attempt to make peace, however, was foretold in verse 6. It says, after some years they will become allies, okay? So here's a historic fact. We were talking about what we read earlier, um, uh, five through nine, I think, the verses. Here's what happened. Through the marriage of his daughter, Berenice, Ptolemy II offered an alliance to Seleucid's grandson, Antichus II. He's the king of the north that they talk about in scripture. Prophecy says the daughter of the king of the south will go to the king of the north and make an alliance. But here's what happened. 
but she will not retain her power, and he and his power will not last. In those days she will be betrayed, together with her royal escort and her father, the one who supported her. So, to, um, to marry Berenice, which is what Ptolemy wanted, he wanted Antichus II, which is, this is an Antichus Epiphanes, the bad guy. This is just another Antichus, by the way. Um, if, if in order for him to marry Berenice, he had to divorce his wife, Laodice. And the scorned Laodice, or I should say Laodice, had Berenice murdered. So then she lures Antichus II to remarry her. And on their wedding night, she poisons him, kills him, and puts her son, um, Seleucus II, on the throne. Nothing like a woman scorned, right? So, that, if you want to go back and read the, pro, the, the verses there, that's what came through historically there. So then we move on to verses 7 through 9, the prophecies and the rest of history. One from her family line will arise to take her place. And that's what um, Seleucus II did. He will attack the forces of the king of the north and enter his fortress. He will fight against them and be victorious. He will also seize their gods, their metal images, and their valuable articles of silver and gold and carry them off to Egypt. For some years, he will leave the king of the north alone. Then the king of the north will invade the realm of the king of the south, but will retreat to his own country. His sons will prepare for war and assemble a great army which will sweep on like an irresistible flood and carry the battle as far as his fortress. Berenice's brother, okay, the one that killed her husband, one of the descendants in her line, which is what scripture says, avenged her death by attacking Seleucus II, which was the king of the north. And, that, and he killed Laodice and took back Egypt and their metal images and their valuable articles of silver and gold, which is mentioned in verse 8. Then later, Seleucus II tried to retaliate, but he failed. Then the king of the north will invade the realm of the king of the south, but will retreat to his own country. That's found in verse 9. And then what arises is the prophecies recorded in verses 10 through 19, and they were too long for me to put on a PowerPoint, speak of what we now know through historic fact that Seleucid's the second son, he had a son named Antichus the Great, not the same Antichus we're talking about, and um, he amassed a vast army and drove the Ptolemics out of Palestine. Now, it said his sons will prepare for war. So Seleucid's the second son prepared for war by amassing that vast army that drove out the Ptolemics out of, out of Palestine. And he was joined by many Jews. Now, I didn't put this in here, but verse, four, verse 14 says, violent ones among your people. That's what they're talking about, their own people. The ones that wanted to make war were the, the, the many Jews that joined him, who viewed him, Antichus the Great, as their champion. But he wasn't the savior Israel had hoped for. He did as he pleased, just like Alexander the Great did. 
He thought only of himself and not the Jews. So, it also says in verse 16, the last half of verse 16, no one will be able to withstand him, talking about Antichrist the Great. He will also stay for a time in the beautiful land, which we established a few weeks ago that that is Israel, and will have power, and will have the power to destroy it. So he was in control of Palestine. Palestine was part of the what we know as Israel now. But in verses 17 through 19, they predict his failed attempts to conquer the world. It says, He will determine to come with the might of his entire kingdom and will make an alliance with the king of the south, which is Egypt. He will give him a daughter in marriage in order to overthrow the kingdom, but his plans will not succeed or help him. He, uh, then he will turn his attention to the coastlands and will take many of them, but a commander will put an end to his insolence and will turn his insolence back on him. After this, he will turn back toward the fortress of his own country, but will stumble and fall to be seen no more. Now remember that sentence, okay? So, I just want you to remember that, that sentence. So, okay, historic fact breaking this down. Hoping to establish peace in Egypt, Antichrist the Great gave Ptolemy V, his daughter, Cleopatra I, which is not the Cleopatra that she came like 200 years later, the Cleopatra that we know. This is a first, this is Cleopatra I back in 194 BC. So he was hoping to give um, his daughter as an alliance, and another daughter that's alliance. He was hoping that she would control Ptolemy and advance his own agenda by controlling him. But you know what? She ended up being sympathetic to the Ptolemic cause. (laughs) And when she gave birth to a son, this gave no political advantage for her father. So he launches an invasion into Asia Minor and Greece, but he was pushed back by Rome's iron legions because he was because and because of this, because he tried to take on Asia Minor and Greece, and Rome pushed back. They forced him to pay a heavy fine for what for that attempt, which was approximately twenty thousand talents, which equals a half a billion to a hundred billion in today's market. Antichus lost all claims to Europe and most of Asia Minor, and agreed to stay east. Verse nineteen says. He will stumble and fall and be seen no more. Okay, so he has a son succeeding Antichus III or Antichus the Great was his first son, Seleucus VI, who inherited this empty treasure and this heavy debt to Rome from his father. The... No, Ptolemy. Ptolemy V was his da- was his dad. Remember, he married Cleopatra, and they had a they had you a baby. Said to Lucas, you said six, and it's. I'm sorry, I put it in wrong. I apologize. no, no, fourth. I apologize. I said it wrong. I, I read my notes wrong. Thank you. It is the fourth. Sorry. Yes, his first son, Seleucus the fourth, who inherited the empty treasure and the heavy debt. So he planned to plunder Israel, to raise the money for the debt, and he sends his finance minister minister. Um, Heliodorus I had to think about that in a second Heliodorus to Jerusalem and in verse 20 it says a tax collector um, to maintain the royal splendor 
And you know how he did this? He did it by seizing the temple funds. They went into the temple and took all the money away from the Jews in order to pay this debt to Rome that they incurred, that his dad incurred by trying to take on Asia and Greece. However, he was unsuccessful. Um, Heliodorus later conspired to have Seleucus IV murdered, and he succeeded. So, the dead king's brother, normally it would be the son that would be the right heir, but the dead king's brother seized the power while the rightful heir to the throne was still very young. And this became, in verse 21, I didn't put it up here, the kingdom of intrigue it talks about. This is what's going on, all this, all this intrigue. And we know this guy as the little horn from Daniel chapter 8, verses 9 through 13. He was the precursor to the Antichrist. This is what they're talking about here in these verses uh, was Antichrist the fourth Epiphanes. According to history, his treacheries in Israel began when he removed the pious and respected high priest Onias III. This is who scripture calls in verse 22, the prince of the covenant will be destroyed. And what happened is he was murdered. Elsewhere, Antichus played a shrewd game of politics with deceptive promises. This guy was slick. And he lured the king of Egypt into an alliance and accomplished what his father never did. What he did is he redistributed the wealth and won widespread support among the lower classes. That's how he, you know, oh, I'll give you, I'll help you. I'll pass this out to you. I'll take some of this. I'm your friend. Here's what it says. After coming into an agreement with him, he will act deceitfully. And with only a few people, he will rise to power. When the richest provinces feel secure, he will invade them and will achieve what neither his father nor his forefathers did. He will distribute plunder, loot, and wealth among his followers. He will plot to overthrow the fortresses, but only for a time. So when he became strong, when Antichus became strong, he invaded Egypt and defeated Ptolemy VI. So that was the king of the south in verse 25 that they're talking about. The king of the south is Egypt. After the battle, the two kings feasted together, toasting and making bargains, but both were deceitful, it says in verse 27. The two kings, with their hearts bent on evil, some translation says bent on mischief, will sit at the same table and lie to each other. As a result, Antichus failed to take control of Egypt because the other guy was just as shrewd as Antichus. Frustrated, though, Antichus Epiphanes was frustrated by only a partial victory. Antichus returned to his land, but on the way he took out his aggression on the Jews, setting his heart against the Holy Covenant. And that's said in verse 28. History states that he wreaked havoc in temple affairs and set up his own high priest. And when there was a minor rebellion, they crushed them cruelly. It was just a minor rebellion, and they they cruelly crushed these people. So then we go two years later to 168 B.C. He tries to conquer Egypt again. So he gets up there, and he does this again. And he's met by Roman vessels under the command of... Populius Lanus, who warned him to withdraw. 
He got in his face. Now here's what happened in history. He took Antichus a letter. Populius, um, Lanus, took Antichus a letter forbidding him, a letter from Rome, forbidding him to engage in war with Egypt. And when Antichus asked for time to consider, the commander drew a circle in the sand around Antichus and demanded that he give an answer before he stepped out of the circle. Mm -hmm. A little humiliating. And he was. He was very humiliated. So Antichus IV did an about face and he returned to Palestine, but he vented his rage on the Jews once more. And this time he slaughtered thousands of Jews. He outlawed Judaism and um, converted the temple into a pagan shrine. So that just took us a little bit deeper into how he turned out to be an abomination that causes desolation. In verse 30 and 31 of the prophecy, it says, ships of the western coastlands will oppose him and he will lose heart. Then he will turn back and vent his fury against the holy covenant, which is the Jewish people. This was a dark period in Israel's history. But finally, a light of hope had come through uh, when the Maccabean family, through the Maccabean family, and they launched a major revolt this time. They had had enough of this. It had gone on for quite a few years with this abomination. And um, that's found in verse 32. And so they revolt against, against Antichus. And many Jews died during this bloody, bloody rebellion. But finally, in 165 B.C., Judas Maccabeus cleansed the temple and restored it to its worship. And this wasn't the end of the persecution of the Jews because trouble would follow God's people through the years all the way to the end of the time in verse 35. And that's kind of where this lesson stops. But it forms a segue into the prophecy of the Antichrist. So next week is the rest of chapter 11 and all of chapter 12. Most commentators believe that the rest of this chapter deals with end times, which is the time of the Antichrist's reign. It's the prophecy that is yet to be fulfilled. Okay? So personally, I believe that God allowed this time in history to teach us, to remind us that during the time of Antichus Epiphanes IV, only the people that know their God will firmly resist him. So it got me thinking. We need to think about this. As we read about the contrast, I mean, sorry, excuse me. As we read about the constant struggles of nations, it reminds us to pray for our own national leaders and for peace. They're dealing with a lot of, they're on a worldwide stage. So there's a lot of spiritual stuff going on. And the secular godlessness of our own age gives us a hint of the climate that could give birth to the ultimate lawless one. All we need is one guy to go out and go, well, let's just spread the wealth to everybody, you know, and get all these people on board because not everybody's seeking the word and seeking the Lord. So we need to be aware and we need to be learned. God has shown us something to prepare us and our children and our children's children. We are not, we are not to walk in fear, but we are to walk in knowledge. I watched a news story a while ago, and it was a commentary about the ISIS situation and the beheading of the Egyptian Christians and all. And, the new, and I was actually in the other room, and I was listening to him. And the newscaster just said this very matter-of-factly. He said, you know how they, 
news doesn't just give the news anymore. They have to give their commentary. And he, and he gave whatever was going on, the facts, blah, blah, blah. And he says, you know what we need? What we need is a one world leader that will lead these natures, nations together. <laughs> and I went, wow. We are globally connected, and there is a need for peace throughout the world. And I thought, well, there it is. He just predicted the Antichrist. It was just, and it was just an off uh, comment, but the seed was planted. Yes. It because somebody's sitting there going, "Yeah, boy, we do. You bet." Well, they've been talking about the new world order for a long oh, time. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, a one world leader. It's subtle, but we have to be aware. We have to be aware. So I always say that knowledge is power. We need to empower ourselves with what the Bible says. We may not always understand it, but we need to empower ourselves. We need to understand that history proved itself, and that when you press the scriptures, they come up true. We need to trust in God and his love for, our, for all of us. We need to learn to replace the lies with truth. He sent us his only son to die for us. I mean, that is love beyond anything we can comprehend. And we need to trust in God's love for us and his word and his, the fact that he's in control and he has a plan that is rolling out for, for us. Because we need to trust in his word and not what the world says. And there's no need for fear. This is all a part of God's plan. And his plan is to be with us forever. Because, well, we need him. And the only way we can get rid of that fear and feel that love and not be shaken to our knees is to empower ourselves with what the word of God says. So, let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for your word, and thank you for your love. Oh, thank you for your love for us, and may we keep your word close to our hearts and close to our minds. We trust you, Lord, and your sovereign hand over all the nations of the earth. And I ask, Lord, that you deliver your people who are unfairly imprisoned right now for you and who are suffering in your name. And may we keep, and may you keep us from evil also, Lord. May we be aware of the plans of the enemy and the change in the atmosphere. And may we always hunger to know your word more. And we ask all of this in Jesus Christ's holy, matchless, and powerful name. Amen. I hope you enjoyed this week's lesson. And I encourage you to fall in love with God's word.